Today, today, <laughs> we're going to bring you Joe Travers. This is incredible. Joe is the vault meister for the Zappa Family Trust, where he oversees archiving and preserving the legacy of the legendary Frank Zappa, working closely with the trust. He's a Berkeley College of Music graduate, been playing with Dweezil and Amat Zappa's Group Z in 1993, and he's been off and running since then. Joe's also gone on to play for Duran Duran, Lisa Loeb, Rich Robinson, Billy Idol, Glenn Hughes, Zappa plays Zappa, The Motels, The Wilsons, Eric Johnson, Joe Satriani, and so much more. He's currently with the Zappa Band, which is made up of musicians that worked in Frank Zappa's band. Would you please welcome Mr. Joe Travers? Woo! Whoa! <laughs> Dom, how are you, man? I am fantastic, Joe. So great to see you, Joe. This is so, so fantastic. Now, I got to tell you something. I, I've seen video of you playing, man. You play like, you, like I said, you just take no prisoners when you play. It's just so exciting to see the commitment of how you play and what you're doing with the Zappa family. I want to try and reach all of this. Sure. But thank you very much. <laughs> it's, what's exciting about it is that I want everyone to kind of understand your beginnings of when you started playing drums and how that all started for you and where you had lived at that time. I think you were in, was it Pennsylvania? Yeah, I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania. And I grew up in a family of drummers. I had no choice. I was I was born with it. And my father was a drummer. My grandfather was a drummer. My cousins and my uncle and it, 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 every, everywhere that I looked as a kid, there was drums. And uh, so I just, I just grew up in that atmosphere and we were all music lovers and there was music everywhere. And so um, as I you know, started to get old, uh, older, I just realized that I could do it. And I had a drum set at four years old. My dad got me a, a kid on my fourth birthday and I just, I just did it. It was just something that just happened naturally, and I just went for it. And uh, and I, you know, I pursued it professionally. That was uh, the goal. So that's what happened. I mean, it was just kind of like, uh, it was just kind of like fate, really. <laughs> so there were drums in the house. Here you are. You're surrounded by it. You know. Yes. It was fate. You had no choice but to play drums. Exactly. Exactly. It was in, it was in the DNA and it was everywhere around me. And I can just remember like times when my cousin would be playing drums and, and my dad would be playing drums all the time. And every time I would go and see them play being really young, I would just know in my body that, Hey, I can do that too. Like it just, it's just like, I was so excited to like show everyone, Hey, I'm, I'm as cool as you guys. <laughs> So, so, um, you know, again, you know, it, it was something that was just natural for me. And I, I, I was one of the only ones in the family that actually pursued it as a profession. I really, you know, I went to school for it and I moved out of town for it. And, uh, you know, it drums were my, my life really. Let's go back to at that age were there specific bands you were listening to at that time. Oh Yeah. There was a ton of, I mean, I grew up on rock and roll, there's no doubt. And 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 I was I was born in 68, so, you know, this early 70s and everything that was happening uh, in popular music at that time on the radio, and then, of course, the music that I was being exposed to uh, through my family. I had an uncle who was 10 years older than me, so when I was, you know, five, he was 15. And when you're a 15-year-old in the early 70s, you're listening to, you know, Kiss and... T-Rex, David Bowie, and, uh, 
you know, a, a, just a ton of a ton of stuff like that. You know, the stuff that was really hot at that time. And um, so I was exposed to a lot of different kinds of music. And then my grandfather was, you know, making sure that I was listening to Buddy Rich at a real young age, you know, and uh, and uh, my mom was spinning records and vinyl like every single day at the house. I mean, it was really it was really like that. It, I mean, it's it's funny, you know, because like vinyl is such a uh, has gotten such a huge resurgence these days. And I think a lot of people are uh, uh, they're they're really like understanding how much of an experience that is to to listen to music that way, because there's been so many people uh, in our past now that's been so used to the iPod and now, of course, streaming. But it's it's funny to think that back in those days, man, you know, people were like, you know, getting up every 20 minutes and changing the record. And, you know, <laughs> it was just like people were spinning vinyl all the time. It was like it was like a household uh, household thing. Absolutely. And to learn a song, you know, if you wanted to learn one track, you were sitting right close to that turntable so you can move that arm over just to the same place to go over and over, which we wore down many of the records because of that. Name me some of the drummers that you were starting to listen to that were influencing you. Okay. So in the early, early days, you know, Danny Seraphine with Chicago was a big one. That was like probably the first one. And um, Peter Chris from Kiss was a big deal for me when I was super young, and um, and uh, a lot of the bands that I was listening to during that time, like I was like what I mentioned, you know, the things that I was hearing on on the radio, of course, popular music and all that. But then as I started getting old enough to start comprehending what these drummers were actually doing, like I, I'm starting to mimic them, you know, like um, uh, Grand Funk Railroad's drummer Don Brewer, that was another huge huge influence on me at a very early age and then the one that literally changed my life and i think obviously changed so many people's lives was john bonham uh when i saw song remains the same the movie uh that i walked out of the theater a totally different person uh i just could not believe uh how that what what he did what he does and what he did spoke to me so much and I said to myself, that's what I want to sound like, you know, because John combined power and, and but with, but he he swung like he was a, he, he was jazzy. You know, he had so much swing behind grease behind what he was doing. And and that was what made me feel inside. Like, I want people to feel like that when I play the drums, you know, so John was a big deal. So those were the real early guys, you know. Uh, so, yeah, Danny Seraphine, Don Brewer. Uh, Ian Ian Pace with Deep Purple, believe it or not, you know, yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting, you know. First of all, Bonzo was a great jazz drummer. There's some yeah. recording of him. He's a great jazz drummer, and his influences, and I had heard from one of his teachers, was um, Joe Morello and Buddy Rich. So when when you when you think about what he you know who he pulled from to get that that saucy you know movement of sound, you know, a, a brilliant drummer and a brilliant student of the art form of what it is, you know. But you got some great, great guys here. But what is it? What was it about, like Danny Seraphin, when you heard him with Chicago? Yeah, how great was that, right? Oh my God! Like make me smile. The end of make me smile. Uh, the the stuff he's doing on the kid on that song. I mean, like I was literally three, and my mother had the the forty five, you know, and I was playing the forty five and hearing it like on a daily basis, you know, and and so yeah, the the first two Chicago albums are like killing. You know, and, and I was listening to that stuff so early just because my mom loved it. So she was playing it around the house all the time. 
So oh, yeah, yeah, Danny is, he's still to this day, he's such a great guy. I'm so glad that I've gotten to know him a little bit. You know, I mean, we're not like huge friends or anything, but we've talked and, um, and he's just super, super kind. And yeah, he was, he was killing back then. Danny oh, <laughs> is a dear friend, still playing great today. He lives in Las Vegas and he's just doing, doing great, great things and uh, still actively involved with it. So it's pretty amazing to see these great, great plays. And Peter Christ, and of course, Don Brew with Grand Funk Railroad. I had the chance. Oh my God. Not a monster. Yeah. He's such a monster. I mean, the, the solo on the live album that came out in 1971 or whatever. I mean, I, I, I was, be I didn't even have a drum set at that time. I was beating on the floor with sticks along with that record, just, you know, <laughs> and that's, he's, uh, that's how I learned how to do, uh, you know, the triplet figure, the right, right, left foot, you know, right, left foot that everyone has to learn. If you, if you're, if you're a drummer and if you don't know how to do the, the right hand, left, left hand foot triplet lick. That's bad. That's bad. But listen, to, <laughs> listen to Don Brewer, man, because he kill. He's he's just just killing it. You know, <laughs> a phenomenal, phenomenal player. So you had some incredible influence by some great, great players. Were you taking any lessons at this time? Did you start to step into music? Were you involved with the school program? What was happening at that time? Yeah, eventually that happened uh, because my my teachers in school um, noticed my talent as a drummer and absolutely wanted to to start because they knew that I was just an ear player and I was listening to music and just picking up stuff off records. And that's the way that, <clears throat> that's the way that I was used to doing it. And so I needed to learn how to read music and I also needed to be exposed to playing different kinds of music. And so my teachers at school really helped to make that a reality for me. Um, some great teachers that really uh, um, just, they, like I said, they just saw the talent in me at so young, and so they wanted to get me on the right paths, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, so I was in jazz band, you know, in high school, and, and in, in middle school, I was I was playing with the with the orchestra, and I made district jazz band, and I was the drummer for the district jazz band, and um, and then I joined marching band, and I was in the marching band for four years, and I was you know playing the the, the quads at that time, and then I and then I made it to snare, and I was the snare drum. Uh, captain and uh, then I started teaching the the high school uh, marching band after I graduated I came back as a teacher so I got some teaching under my belt and I was teaching privately a little bit around town but that was when I just I knew that I was gonna leave town and, and I went to Berkeley and uh, and started pursuing just becoming a better more well well-rounded better drummer for for what I wanted to do and um so yeah, th those times during school was very important. It was super important. Boy, between put, playing with the jazz band, of course, doing the marching band, you were really getting your chops together. Were there any Were there any books that you were working on? Were there drum books that were involved in, in your learning process at that time? There was, there was, but they didn't start until I got to Berkeley. Once I got to Berkeley, that was when like the major the books started happening. Um, my teachers at Berkeley were like, "You need to have the George Stone book." And uh, and the Louis Belzen Modern Reading Text in Four Four book was a good one. Absolutely, totally. that's a good one. John Ramsey had me, you know, because uh, I because I needed to learn independence a little bit better than where, where I was where I was at when I when I first got to Berkeley. So one of the things that John Ramsey had me doing was you know uh, playing ostinato patterns uh, with with the right hand and the feet, and then uh, reading down certain pages of the Louis Belzen book with my left hand. And incorporating all that and then, you know, making it uh, go between the hand and foot and, you know, while keeping the jazz ride symbol pattern happening and stuff. And that was really uh, 
good for me too to start learning independence that way uh so yeah there was th those two books were a big deal and then there was um there was one more oh the polyrhythm book yeah i forget uh i think it's gary chafee's patterns yeah his books yeah yeah, yeah th th that was a that was one that 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 and, and there was a linear thing too. I, now I'm sorry, I can't remember the linear book, but uh, there was some linear. It might have been the, I can, could have been the Gary Chafee thing. I can't remember, but anyway, yeah, the book started coming in, in in around Berkeley, and and that was great. But you know, I I, I realized at one point, like, okay, I could really get super into these books, and I could really start, you know, technically going there. And but I also just wanted to rock at that time so so i was trying to balance out you know uh how much you know being in a rock and roll band and and being like the most technically proficient uh in you know guy and i tried to balance it out because i knew that i i wanted to be a well a well-rounded player that was the one thing that was my goal when i was in my years at berkeley was to to really kind of digest many different types of music discover things that i wasn't getting exposed to when growing up in pennsylvania which was a big deal because at berkeley you had the opportunity through the faculty there and then also through the the, the fellow people that you were living around in the dorms i mean i used to walk down the hallway and there would be kids blaring music that they were into and you know one uh dorm room would be jamming uh some oscar peterson that I'd never heard of before. And then you walk down the hallway and then they're slamming some white snake with Steve Vai. And then you walk down the hallway some more and they're playing kind of blue. I mean, it's just, it was, it was so great to be in such a rich environment with, with music. If you're a music lover, which, which of course at that time I, I am a music lover, but at that time I was like a sponge. I wanted to hear everything, you know, <laughs> so it was a good place to be. And I wanted all that to rub off on me just as much as I wanted uh, the um, the the technical aspect to rub off on me too. So what? So so Berkeley, you know, you, you kind of saw the need for Berkeley, and Berkeley is a, a fantastic school, as any of the music schools. When you go there and you surround yourself with like-minded people that are sponges to learn music, and you're just taking in all those different influences, it's just amazing the power of who you can meet. As all you know, all the dream theater musicians came out of there and and, uh, sure. and built there. So at this point now, you're in Berkeley, you're doing your thing. At what point did you think, I'm ready to make the move out to L.A.? Yeah, because <clears throat> it was like, okay, you're going to go to New York or you're going to go to L.A.? That was really the big question. Uh, Nashville is obviously a place that you could go to nowadays and, and, and you know, you could work a lot being a musician. But back then, for me, it was like, okay, am I going to go to New York? Or am I going to go to L.A.? And I really did weigh out the options. I wanted to know what was going to work for me and um, – you know, and it's like in New York, you had, had to deal with the weather. You had to deal with that. You you know, it's it probably wasn't uh, feasible to drive mostly. And how am I going to get my drums around? And um, in, and in L.A., I had the opportunity to get a job because I had already had a, a chance to, to transfer from Tower Records where I was working at in Boston to uh, the one on Sunset Strip. So I had a job. I had the weather, which was nice. And I had um network of uh, uh, some contacts that i had already built in the industry uh most significantly mike keneally who was the guitar player in the 1988 uh zappa band and he was at that time playing with dweezil zappa and dweezil's group and mike and i were uh had you know befriended each other and were keeping in touch and he lived out there and of course the zappa family was out there and frank zappa is my hero so i thought 
I had my sights set on maybe playing with Dweezil and Mike someday. And so I just thought, you know what? I have a job. I want the weather. I've the Zappas are out there. I'm gonna go to LA. And that's what and, <laughs> and I'm really glad I did that. <laughs> Smart move. And if you don't think I think about LA from like December to February when I'm living here in New York, oh my gosh, good. Good move on your part. So yeah. you get out to L.A., you got your job now, you're working Tower Records, you got yep. some money coming in, you find a place to live, or did you crash with anybody? How did you find each yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, I I, I, uh, I, had some friends that I met at Berkeley, and they had moved out before I did. And, you know, so I said, dude, you got need, you need a roommate? I'll come and stay with you, you know? So, so literally, when I moved to Los Angeles, I had my drums you know, and a suitcase full of clothes, and, uh, and I was uh, living in the living room of a two bedroom apartment with two other guys that I had met at Berkeley. And uh, yeah. And then eventually I, I got my own apartment in North Hollywood and, and a friend, a drummer friend of mine uh, from Berkeley moved out and, and was my roommate. And, and I basically had a roommate for the first 10 years that I lived in Los Angeles. And then eventually, you know, uh, from the amount of work that I was getting as a drummer and then also uh, the, 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 the steady paycheck that I was making with the Zappa family because I had been working for the family for years and years at that point, I was able to make enough money to live on my own, which was really nice to not have to have a roommate. So, and it's, and it hasn't changed. Absolutely. This is fantastic. Well, let's go back a little before we, so, yep. so you come out now. So did you, did you, the, what was some of the first professional gigs you got when you got out there? Okay. So picture this here I am, I'm like 22 Okay, and I don't own a car. I've got a bicycle, and I'm riding back and forth up and down Sunset Strip to work every day. And I literally have a, a, a like a press kit like that I made. It's like it's got a headshot. I used to have hair down to my the middle of my back back then. I wanted to be in a rock and roll band, but I knew that I was, you know, a a, a player that could offer more than just being in a rock band. But I mean, we're talking about at that time in 1992. We were coming out of the hair band thing, you know, uh, we're coming out of, you know, the, the, the David Lee Roth, great Bizonette era, which was so great, you know, and, and extreme was really popular and stuff, but like, but the transition of all that stuff was happening with Nirvana and the Seattle thing and all that stuff. So like, like the, the, the hair rock band thing was kind of getting on its, on its outs in the, in the strip and in, in LA. And there was a new kind of sound coming in. And so I'm trying to find my my place. Like I'm trying to find out what what's going to happen. So I'm working at Tower. I'm meeting people. I'm making connections. I'm I'm trying to find out where I could uh, score some auditions. You know, and um and also I'm like literally going to studios, like driving my bike to studios and just leaving a press kit there and saying, hey, if you need a drummer, call me. You know, like literally it was. And my press kit had like a uh. It had like a, a headshot, a bio, and I put a videotape in there. Now, you know, you got to think about 1992s. This dude's got a videotape to show himself off Dude. instead of an audio tape, right? You know? <laughs> so, this, anyway, this is that great skill. This is great self promotion that you were ahead of the game and the challenges that we had. We didn't have what we have now. So what was the next step? Yeah, Dom, I, I was so hungry when I came to L.A. I, I was shameless. I didn't care how I got the audition or how I got a gig. I just wanted something, anything. I just wanted to play, you know, and I was so hungry to do it. And um, so, uh, so so I had been in town literally for six months 
when the opportunity to audition for Dweezil and Ahmed's band came about. And that was through Mike Keneally because Mike and I started hanging out when I got to town. Yeah, Like I told you, I had befriended him previously before I made the move. And so he was living here. And so I move here and I work in a tower and I'm trying to get my, you know, my, my footing basically. And Mike and I are hanging out and, um, Dweezil and Amit needed a drummer. Their drummer had, had, had left. And Mike said, Hey, you know, you remember Joe Travers? Uh, cause I had met them a couple different times previously, uh, once in New York and once in Boston before I moved out to LA and I said, do you remember that guy, Joe Travers? Well, he just moved here, and he lives here now. And uh, Dweezil said, well, you know, does he want to audition? And he's like, yeah, we would love to. And so that's where it all started, right there. Uh, six months in, L- in Los Angeles, and the next thing I know, I'm literally scoring the audition for the band that if you would have asked me, who would you, like, if in the top five people that you would like to play with, who would you like to audition for? I mean, number one would have been that band. And here I was getting that opportunity literally six months after moving there. It was unbelievable. It was crazy. But this, this show, this is a real testimony. And I, and I want the, the listeners to understand. This is a testimony to you as far as your drive, your perseverance, and the clarity laser type focus of your vision of what you wanted. This really is what, what is a pathway to success. You have to have that unending desire of, I don't care what's in my way, this is what I'm going for. And that really is what will deliver success absolutely all the time. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, if you're that determined and if you make it that, you know, like if you just consume yourself with that, with a goal, any goal, really, I think for anybody that's out there, if you've got the personality and if you have the talent, you know, if you're not an asshole and if you can really back up you're playing with 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 what you say you can do and you go in there and you can do it what can stop you honestly like what can stop you from getting the gig you know um i have to tell you this dom when i i I went in on a friday and met them because they called me and said you know come on down and meet them so i went down there and i met dweezil and mike and 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 uh dweezil handed me a copy of the new record now this is 75 minutes of music that i'd never heard before and he said, learn this and come back on Monday. So I had two days to learn that entire CD. And let me tell you something. I knew in my heart, and like I have to be, I know it's just sound, I don't want to get super deep, but I knew in my heart that this was it. Like if I don't do this now, right now, right. then I may never get this chance again. Right. So I did everything in my power to memorize every fucking song. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> on that CD. I mean, I was making notes. I every, two days in, for two days in a row, I was living that CD and I came in to that audition Monday and I wanted to make sure that there was nothing that they called that I didn't know. You know, like I wanted to have every bass covered. I was so so ready. And I did. I came in, I knew every single song and all the way through, no problem and uh I I I really, you know, and I hardly looked at any notes. You know, I just went in there and uh, the only critique that they said is they'd like to hear me hit a little harder. That was the only thing they said. Like, you sound great. You know, everything's great. Just just dig in a little more. And that was it. I had the gig. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. Now, a couple of things now. The music that you were learning, what kind of music was it? Oh, it it was progressive. You know, it was 
Zappa tinged rock and roll, you know, uh, odd time stuff. Um, uh, yeah, you know, the drummers that played on on that record were um, some pretty great drummers, and so I was filling the shoes of a lot of great session guys. Mark Craney played on that record, uh, Ainsley Dunbar, uh, Tal Bergman, uh, Toss Panos, a lot of great drummers. Great, and great so, yeah, and so I had to learn like all these guys, all this stuff, you know. And so, um, I yeah, I just went for it. I just totally went for it. Did you, did you chart? You had two days. Did you chart it out? I want people to understand. Did you chart it out uh, chart wise, or did you make like little notes? How did you? How'd you organize? Okay, so that's that's typically my process anyway. No matter what, like if I get if I get called to to be in a band, like when I did Joe Satriani, for instance, in 2018. You know, he gave, he gave me a whole albums full of stuff. And he said, this is, you know, this is what we're going to be doing on the road. So my process is that first I'll just listen through and just get it in my body. Just like get it in my head, like just listen. And then I'll start going back and, and listening to every song and making notes on a piece of paper. And it's it would be like charting it out. But what it really is, it's like it's like it's like my own little hieroglyphics you know it's like my little like roadmap that i that i make you know and and that ends up being like i'll make like i'll start staring at that my my notes and listening back and what happens is is like my my brain almost makes like a visual imprint of those notes and i can literally kind of see those notes if i stare at them long enough and learn the song with those notes i can see those notes in my head sometimes when i'm when i'm just learning a song and just playing it for the first time with a group. And so that's the process. And then what happens is that as I start to memorize the songs, I don't need the, the to, I don't need those notes. It just, I just internalize it. And so that's the process I'll make, I'll listen to it first. I'll make some notes and then I'll get used to hearing that song with the notes. And then eventually the notes go away and I just, and it's just there. That's, that's normally how it goes. But for 75 minutes of music in two days, holy <laughs> crap. <laughs> so Dweezil and Amat was in that was in that band. Yes, the the brothers Dweezil and Amat. Yes, yeah, they were in the band. So so you you go on tour. What what happened with the band at that point? You, yeah, you as soon as I got the gig, we were we went into rehearsals and we started rehearsing. And uh, Frank was alive at this point, by the way. And um and then we had uh, some local gigs. Uh, the first gig that I played was I think in like May of nineteen ninety three i got the gig in march and then around may i played and 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 believe it or not oh god i gotta tell you this story so think about this dom here i am i'm like 22 23 i've got my first professional gig i'm so excited and i'm about to play my first show in a in a club in los angeles with 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 z and we're backstage and and this is like it's packed. I mean, there's celebrities all over the place. You know, with the Zappa family, they 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 had been around for so long. They know so many people in the industry. So, I'm seeing you know I'm seeing Chris Robinson from the Black Crows and Weird Al Yankovic and all these people are hanging out and and I'm backstage and and like 45 minutes later we were supposed to start at like nine o'clock and it's like quarter to ten and I'm like wow what the hell's taking us so long you know so I go to Dweezil and I'm like dude why aren't we playing and he was like oh oh they're seating my father right now we have to wait and I was like. <laughs> it was i i couldn't believe that frank zappa was coming to this show i just could not even believe it like oh my god i'm gonna play in front of frank zappa right now this isn't this is too much this is this is making my blood pressure go up right now just talking about the story <laughs> <laughs> 
but it was amazing you know uh that was one of the very last times that frank ever went out in public yeah. that's one of one of the very last times and uh yeah he came and saw the band and loved it and he invited me to his house to come and meet him after that not after that night but later on and yeah it was it was an unbelievable night for me it was huge such a huge night so now you, you I mean, you're playing. You're doing the, this, this. is already, you know, uh, you know, the beginning of a movie. You know, Joe. This is really what this. This has got got you know, movie style buildup of what it is. So now, you're a Zappa fan since ten years old. Yes. So that's that was always a part of of your life. Now you kind of get involved. Now you're playing with his children. Now all of a sudden you get involved as a Vaultmeister. Yes. What? what you know, since like 1995. Yes. Yes. Exactly. How did that come about? How did that all kind of, you know, mature? Okay, so so while, after Frank passed, you know, he left behind a staff of people that had been working there, you know, obviously while he was alive. And there was an engineer and a tech and uh, a, a, a digital secretary, if you will. And, um, and all these people were still working for Gail. And um, so one day... Uh, we were in. We were having some recording sessions at the house. You know, Dweezil was keeping very busy up there. We were always writing music and being a band, and you know, compiling future stuff together. And um, and I always wanted to go into the vault because the vault is like the keys to the kingdom. I mean, that's like the big deal. And I'd always heard about the vault, but I'd never seen it. And so one day I asked, um, you know, one of the uh, one of the guys that worked there. I said, "Hey, would it be okay if I, you know, went in and saw the vault?" So he he said, "Sure." So they got the keys and they took me down under the house into the to where, where the vault is. And I walked in there and I was just like looking around, and I couldn't believe the amount of tapes and media and stuff. I mean, I was just like, "Oh my god," you know. And so as we're as we're walking around, I'm asking him, oh, my gosh, do you know what this tape is? And I know what this is. And I'm looking at the, the tape spines and I'm seeing all this stuff. And I'm such a huge fan that, like, I, I knew what a lot of these performances were and what the bands were at the time and what's been released and what hasn't been. And, oh, this is a gem. And, and, and oh, yeah, this is already out. And so they went back and told Gail, they said, Hey, you know, Dweezil's drummer knows more about what's in that vault than you or I combined. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and that's how, that's how it happened. The next thing I know, Gail was like, great. He's the vault meister. And I said, Oh man. And so the next thing I knew I was, I had those keys in my hand and I was in the vault with a pad of paper and a, and a marker. And, and I, you know, with no computer skills whatsoever, and it, it, you know, it was my job to to document and preserve the contents of this unbelievable man, and uh, and it's still happening. It's been you know twenty five years since that day or whatever it's been. And Gail passed away in two thousand fifteen, if I remember. Yes, yeah, she passed away. So you deal now with the children. Yes, Amit and Diva. Yes, and they still have that same house where the vault is. No, no, uh, Lady Gaga now has that house. And the vault has moved to a secure location in Hollywood, mm -hmm. and um, everything is great. We, you know, we we have a wonderful uh, relationship with Universal Music, and Universal since 2012 has been the place to get the entire Zappa catalog and all of the posthumous releases that we've been putting together all through these years. And we've been we've been pumping on all cylinders uh, for for many years now. We've been putting out some amazing amazing uh 
documents of of that man's career throughout the years. Is there a documentary that that uh, you know you know is being put together or can be put together? We just had one released in uh, in November of 2020. Uh, we had a, a, a documentary called Zappa made by Alex Winter, the famous director and actor. And uh, we're very excited about it. It's so well done. It, we're getting we're getting really great reviews from it. I, I love how it how it turned out. It was a it was a long time coming. It was a six year project. It was a very large Kickstarter campaign that we did to help save the the contents of the vault because. Um, as you may or may not know, uh, not every, you know, film and, and tape, they don't live over time sometimes, especially film, if it's not in the right, um, if it's not in the right environment, that's exactly right. And so Frank's stuff was, was very threatened. Um, and so uh, with the help of the fans out there, uh, we raised, uh, we were the sing- single largest uh, fundraiser event in the history of Kickstarter. And we were able to save a lot of the film uh, from, and now the film is in in great hands. It's 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 in a very climate controlled uh, place, and the audio tapes are doing great. And uh, and the thing about the audio tapes is is that if if by any chance there's any issues with those tapes, you can actually bring them back from the dead by heat tr- heat treatment. Yes, you actually bake the tapes. You know. Yes. And yes. so I had to learn about all that stuff. I had to learn how to, you know, which tapes you can bake and which ones you can't. Right. And, and, and how do you bake the tapes and with what do you do it? I mean, I learned from the greats. <laughs> just, like, just like, you know, you learn drums from the greats when you listen to all these amazing players that, you know, before you. Um, that's what I had to do with, with the handling of, of this media uh, is, to, is to learn how to, to, to do it right. Boy, this is so amazing. Well, a couple of different things. You know, I, I know about the big taping taping of, of, of the of the reels. There was an audio tape that Jim Chapin had recorded for his drum book in 1963, and he lost the tapes. I found the tapes in 2003, 40 years later. Wow! And the only way that we could preserve them was we had to bake them and then play them to digitalize them because mm-hmm. the tapes. So that's an incredible process. That's, that that's exactly what my job is. And do you know why those tapes don't survive over time? Is because most of, most of the oxide uh, it doesn't stick to the backing because what happens is is that the the um, see the lubrication for tape back in the old days prior to 1976 was used with whale blubber oil and that's the truth and for obvious reasons they had to stop using that for tape lubrication and so they came up with a synthetic oil. Right. Uh, and that synthetic oil did not last over time. And so what happens is if you try to play a tape that um, has been sitting on a shelf for 40 years or whatever, and it, and it doesn't have the right kind of formulation to last this long, if you try to play it, it'll just smear all over the, the heads and it'll be completely gone. Yeah. And there are a lot of live shows in Frank's vault that were on those, that, that kind of tape. I mean, you have to think about how many tours Frank Zappa was on between 1976 and you know 1982, let's say, and uh, and there's a lot of tapes uh, in the vault that that need to be treated first before you play them, or else they'll be gone forever. So um, yeah, that's that's one of the main reasons why those tapes didn't they didn't last. Incredible. Now now tell me about the the documentary. Where's it available? How can people see it? How can they check it? It is, it is available now. You can you can rent it on uh, Amazon or Hulu and stuff like that. And then there is a Blu-ray a Blu-ray release and a regular DVD. And I think that's out on the market now. 
I, I think so. I'm not sure exactly, but if not, it's going to be very soon. But I think it's out now. And um, the soundtrack is, uh, believe it or not, the vinyl soundtrack. There is a five LP set and a two LP set. And those are going to be available this Friday, May 7th. The vinyl comes out. But digitally, the CD and the digital streaming version of the soundtrack has been available since uh, last November when the when the movie uh, premiered um, on Thanksgiving. It was Thanksgiving of 2020 when when we finally released the Zappa documentary. It's a very well made uh, portrait of the man. It's Alex Winter did a wonderful job. I, I think um, it's something that uh, you make make sure that you've got tissues when you watch it. It's yeah. deep. It's very yeah. emotional. A absolutely. Now, I will, well, I will highly recommend. I will absolutely watch that this evening, and I will highly recommend. So I guess Amazon Prime, you can go on that. And, and That's right. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like four bucks. Great. Uh, it's, uh, well, it's well worth oh, it. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. If, if it was 400 bucks, it would be well worth it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, so what's amazing is that you know Frank had such an, an such a massive amount of music. How do you even start contemplating how you're going to put a project together to you know elongate his legacy? How, how do you put this together? Well, we we have production meetings once a year, and we talk about that exact thing. Like, what are we going to prioritize? for the upcoming year you know and the things that we take in consideration is is anniversaries because literally right now we're in the 50th anniversary of of frank's career like you know right now in 19 this is 2021 so 50 years ago was 1971 so next year will be night you know 1972 the 50th anniversary of anything that he did in 1972 so we think about things like that first right and then we also uh implement things like okay, let's put out a concert. And what band, what era hasn't been, uh, I don't want to say exploited because that sounds, I don't, but, but you know, what, what, what band has, has there not been really a release of lately? And, and like, for instance, we just announced uh, this recent concert release that's going to be coming out, which is the last U.S. show that Frank played with his 1988 group, which was in Uniondale, New York and Long Island there yeah. where you're at. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and so we just decided that would be a good thing to do. Uh, it's a good show and it's historical. And so, you know, we take in, we take into account those types of things. So we think about theme oriented stuff, series and, um, you know, whether we want to do a studio thing or a live thing, an anniversary thing or just something just for no reason at all. Oh and uh, so those are the things that we talk about. And believe me, there's a lot of things to pick from. <laughs> is, is the family involved in those production meetings? Oh, sure. It's it's Ahmed and Diva. And then we have a we have a, a crew. Um, we have a production manager and uh, a publishing president and uh, and myself. And then we also have social media uh, people and we all get together and talk about it. Yeah. You know, requests from the fans too. I, I'm I'm very active online, and I read what people want to see and hear, and uh, so I always take that type of stuff in consideration as well. You know, absolutely amazing. Just amazing. Now, when he played, uh, that was at the uh, Nassau Coliseum. Yes, eighty-eight on Long Island. Did he play at the Nassau Coliseum before that time? You know, yeah. that's I, I think he did. I think he did, but I'm not sure. Uh, I would have to do a little research to find out to make sure if he played there prior to 1988. 
but uh, I mean, he's played everywhere. I mean, you know, yeah. name name a classic venue. He was well, there, you know. Absolutely. Well, I, I I know because I attended one of those shows. Whether it was his no, it was his last show. Whatever, I can't remember that far back. But I remember, and and to, just to hear him live, it was like this. It it was as close to a religious experience as you can imagine. Because it oh was, man, it was spiritual. It was fun. It was celebratory. It was your eyes were wide open and intense. You couldn't hear some of the stuff that was being. Couldn't even imagine what was being played in front of you. And, and how well it was being played. I mean, there was, there was a lot of magic to what Zappa did. I only got to see one tour, and it was the 1988 tour, which was the last tour that he went on. I, I was able, my generation, you know, I, I once I started getting old enough to, to go to actual shows, you know, Frank had been doing it for so long by then, you know, he was, he was pretty much near the end of it, but, uh, but I was able to see the 80 tour, 88 tour. I saw him in Cleveland and that, that, talk about another night of, you know, a, a highlight of your life. I mean, cause I had been listening to him for so long and just to finally get a chance to see him was like, wow, you know, it's, it was unbelievable. Well, here's, here's the, the magic is as a drummer. Now you have this list of drumming Heroes and legends, the Terry Bozios, Ralph Humphrey, Chad Wackerman, Johnny Gurin, Vinnie Kaliuta, Chester Thompson, Jim Gordon. You've got, you know, Adrian Ballou. You've got, you know, Michael Brecker. You've got, the, you know, Carol Kay. You've got this incredible, you know, list of just fantastic artists that he was associated with. Listen, when you're listening to this stuff, you got to be freaking going nuts. Oh, my God, man. I mean, I'm opening up tape boxes that have never been opened before. I mean, literally, the gaffer, gaffer's tape is still on it from when it was handed over from a tour. I mean, Frank didn't get a chance to listen to every ta every single tape. And so there's times still to this day where I will pick a city from a certain year and I'll look and I'll be like, oh, this has never even been opened. And, uh, you know, the tapes are playing great, uh, most of them. And, yeah, to hear vintage performances with, like, George Duke and Ruth Underwood and Chester Thompson and then... You know the stuff from with Bozio on it from this from seventy six and seventy seven, and then you get into the Vinny years seventy eight yeah. through eighty. I mean, it's just nonstop. I get so excited when every day when it's time for me to to put a tape up on a machine and 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 listen to something that nobody's ever heard since it happened live. You know, it was documented the night that it happened, and it's really surreal sometimes. You know, when I sit in my office by myself and I'm. And I'm literally, I know that I'm hearing history. I know this, you know, and it's such a, a, a rewarding a, a rewarding feeling for me that the trust is in a position now where some of these things that I get a chance to hear is now being made available so that other people can hear them, the world can hear them, you know, and that's great that we're actually sharing this stuff for the fans that have been chomping at the bit for years to to, to hear it. And so that's just like, it's so fulfilling for me, yeah. for my job, it's so that I'm not the only one that's experiencing yeah. this amazing shit, you know, like other people are finally getting to hear it too. And that's, that's great. Absolutely. Well, you know, aside from his, his, first of all, Frank's biography is also a great read just to yes. have, you know, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, just so many guys, uh, Scott Pistol Crockett is here and uh, this is so incredible. So many guys I want to make mention. Um, we have a question. Let's, let's pull a question up. I think that uh, cool. Chad has a question. He says, this is from Bob Chamberlain. Bob from Massachusetts. Joe, talk about the time with Duran Duran. He saw you Woo! back the, at the old Tower Records. Wow. Okay. Oh, my gosh. So remember I told you about that night that I played in Los Angeles and Frank Zappa came? That was yeah. my first gig. Yeah. Well, sitting at that table with Frank, 
was Gail Thomas Nordegg, who was uh, a longtime friend and and uh, tech, and Warren Cucarulo. Warren Cucarulo was the guitar player for Duran Duran at that time, yeah. and Warren and Frank said, "What about that drummer?" You know, and so Warren ended up calling me and asking me if I would be available to do some of his solo side project stuff outside of Duran Duran because Duran Duran wasn't uh, so so busy during certain times. And so I next thing I knew, I was flying to London and and doing shows. I learned, you know, uh, uh, solo solo pieces by by Warren, and I was playing in a trio format with Warren at places like the Marquee Club in London, you know, in like 1996 and stuff like that. So w- one thing led to another, and uh, there was a scheduling conflict with the current drummer of Duran Duran in 1999. Uh, he ended up going and playing with Jeff Beck, and that left the spot open. And Warren called me and said, Joe, it's time. <laughs> that's what he said. It's time. And I, you know, I woke up one morning and there was a message left on my machine, and that's what I heard. And I was like, oh my God, this is happening. So I, I called Warren and I said, um, what's going on, man? And he was like, Do you, you know, are you going to be available to tour with Duran Duran? And I said, ah, let me think about it. Sure. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, so yeah, so I, I joined I joined the group in 1999, and uh, that lasted until 2001, and it disbanded because the band Duran Duran they they decided to do a reunion with their original members. And that made total sense. And so the bass player and myself and Warren were out of a gig <laughs> after two years. <laughs> but it was it was really fun. I had an amazing time with those guys. I didn't get a chance to record any studio records or anything, but I played live for them uh, for you know multiple tours within two years. Incredible, man. When, when you think about just what you've experienced, this is so exciting, Joe. I mean, you're you're, oh. you're living the dream at such a high level. And I mean, this is this is just magic all the way around. We've got people from all around the world that are checking us out here too, and uh, which is uh, so exciting. It's Let's great. talk a second about about the versatility on drums. I mean, because you know, I mean, you've worked with Lisa Loeb, you know, Joe Satriani. I mean, you know, you know, again, you set up with Duran Duran, the you know, the, the, the Zappa Boys. I mean, you, you got there's a lot of variety. You need to be prepared for that. So, what should someone do to be that prepared? Okay, well, that that was a big goal for me, and I think that Greg Bizonette was probably the one that really showed me the way because here he was in the in the spotlight with David Lee Roth in 1986 in one of the best assembled rock bands that I could think of. I mean, uh, Steve Vai, Greg Bizonette, Billy Sheehan. I mean, what an unbelievable band. And I, I didn't know who the hell Greg Bizonette was, you know, but he sounded great, you know, and I was a huge fan of that band and of that tour. And then when you look into Greg's past, you realize, holy shit, this guy played with Maynard Ferguson, you know, and he's he knows this. He knows his shit. And and that was when I realized, you know, OK, yes, I definitely want to be in a rock band. I want to be a rock and roll drummer, but I know that I could be better than that. Not not that that's a bad thing. I just mean that I have the ability to to. I'm a music lover. I want to I want to dip my feet into all sorts of stuff. That that doesn't mean that I'm going to be some, you know, Latin expert cuz I, you know, I didn't grow up listening to Latin music my whole life or whatever, you know. It's like I don't pro- pro- profess to be some jazz uh snob or some jazz uh traditionalist or whatever, but 
I love to play jazz. I love, I love it. I love, I love to do Latin stuff and, and I, and I, and I, I love a bunch of different music. And so I wanted to make sure that when I went to Berkeley, that I tried uh, to understand multiple types of music and what it took in order to play it right. Not just play it, but really play it right and make it feel good. And that's super beneficial because, um, you don't know what you're going to end up doing when you, I mean, most musicians do find their niche when they, when they start getting into it, you know, they'll, 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 they'll find the things that they fall into musically. But for me, I wanted to be able to play with a singer songwriter or play with a rock band or swing with a jazz band. You know, I could read music. My chops were very high with reading. And so and I, or, or be in a session, you know, be a, be a session person. Like I, I, I wanted to make sure that if I got a call, that I could do a really good professional job at whatever it is that they called for. And, you know, sometimes it's kind of a hard achievement to reach because you can't expect to be, um, like I said, you can't be like a, a purist at something if it's not in your heart and soul. Like I didn't grow up listening to Latin music, like I said, so, you know, I'm not going to get called for the next, uh, you know, Latin gig or whatever, but, but you'll find in your heart, the things that you love the most, like, one of the things that was really important to me, Dom, was I remember around 1990 or so, I was exposed to the Meters, the band The Meters, and Zigaboo, man. I mean, Ooh. once I heard Zigaboo, I mean, I had heard so much R&B, you know, and stuff in the past and funk music and stuff, but but I realized that how I felt when I listened to The Meters, you know, like how amazing that music was and those drum <laughs> patterns and how special that was. That is when I, uh, as Gail Zappa would say, I took a left turn at Wednesday and I said, <laughs> I'm not going to be just the next drummer for, for like a dream theater type band. I want to be, I want to be more than that. You know, I want to do more than that. And so, you know, learning about the funk masters and, and R and B and, and the jazz greats and all that stuff, it all rubs off on you. So I would say that, you know, try to soak in as much, culture from all these different musical styles as you can and learn from the greats and then let it go through your own filter and and just you know personalize you know all the, all those influences and what comes out is what you have to offer you know that's that's how i that's how i did it <laughs> well it, it obviously has worked and it's continued working now before we leave as we're getting close to winding down talk about your vader sticks you like the josh freeze the H220 models, you like the Jazz Ride, the Los Angeles 5A. Just talk about the, the sticks that you have and that you Yeah, use. Vader. You know, I'm I, I'm so glad that that Chad and company uh, took me on with Vader. Um, you know, it's hard for me to just have one specific stick because, you know, every gig is different. You know, if I have to play music that's heavier, I have to have a stick that is going to help me along with that because – I let the sticks do the work a lot of the time, you know, I, d I don't really want to physically beat myself up trying to get a, a huge sound out of something if, if it's, if it's, if it's required. So a bigger stick will help with getting a bigger sound out of the cymbals and out of the drums, you know? And so it really depends on what I'm doing. I, the Los Angeles 5A is basically the go-to stick for me, but Josh's stick yeah, the Los Angeles 5A is just like, okay, like if I'm going to just warm up or if I'm just going to play uh, in practice or whatever, the Los Angeles 5A is the one. If I'm going to show up at a gig, there's going to be a bunch of 5As in my, in, my, in my stick bag. When I went out on the road with Joe Satriani, uh, my stick bag 
half of it was filled with the Josh Free stick, and the other half was was filled with the powerhouse, which I think is a Virgil Donati stick. But yeah, Josh's stick, what a great beefy beefier stick than the five A. And, it, and it's a little bit more longer lasting when playing in heavier situations. And then, um, you know, there's something to be said about, you know, when you've got some really nice ride symbols and you just want to, and you want to swing a little bit. So I use the, the jazz ride stick for that. You know, I love to, you know, if I'm going to play softer gigs and if I'm going to play with a singer songwriter or something, that's not real loud, I'll use the jazz ride. Cause I love uh, the sound that the tip makes i'm a wood tip guy and uh there's such a small there you know the small teardrop and the and the real tiny taper on the jazz ride makes for a really nice sensitive sound so that's a stick that i'll use too so it really just depends on what i'm playing and uh but yeah i think i think overall um i love the 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 range of choices that vader gives you because there is just so many and they're always coming up with great ideas and so um yeah, the Josh stick, the Los Angeles 5A, those are pretty much the, the go-tos. Good for you, man. Good, good for you. Well, they, they sure do make fantastic product. The quality. Alan Vader is such a prince of a guy. His whole team there. And, of course, Chad Brandelini, who we have a chance to uh, network with, is right there and just easily one of the best A&R people in the business. So it's just great to have his his support as we do what we do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I I remember, uh, you know, Jack's drum shop in Boston, right around the corner from where I was living, you know, and so there's, we, we got that history there. <laughs> the Vader family at the start, man, doing their thing there and then starting to make sticks and from sticks, the Vader company has made sticks for just about everybody in the industry before they started their own company and did their own thing. So it's been great to see the, the evolution and growth of what they're doing. Joe, I thank you so much, man. You have done fantastic. This has been a pleasure to have some time with you. We've got some incredible people that have viewed in here, so that, that are watching it on Facebook and on YouTube. Thank you so much. Stay well, stay safe. I hope we can get together at some point, maybe at the NAMM show in January when it comes around. If we're all back in action, we can get together then, and uh, it'll be good to see you. Well, I'll tell you, once the industry actually opens up and we start touring again, when the Zappa band comes through Long Island, you have to come to the show. You better believe it. I, mean, you let me, <laughs> I will be there front row, man. Fantastic. I would enjoy every moment of that. Absolutely. It would be great to see you. I remember when you played at Berkeley, man, and I just couldn't believe it. I was a student and you were doing a clinic there. And I thought to myself, where, where does, where does that feat come from? Like, how does somebody do that? I don't know how to, how does he do that? <laughs> great time. That had to be like 1988 or 89 at that point. Oh my gosh. Unbelievable, man. How fantastic. I mean, great, great memories. Well, thank you so much, man. I wish you the best. Stay safe, stay well, and hopefully I'll see you real soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joe. Fantastic. How incredible these stories, man. So absolutely, make sure you go to Amazon Prime. Check out the Frank Zappa biography. Check out Frank Zappa's book. Go do more research on the band with what uh, Joe Travis is doing. He's a phenomenal player, and he's just uh, got a, a great, great personality. And he's definitely someone to be able to listen to and learn from for sure. Next week, next week, we're going to have Sean McLaughlin. Sean's going to join us from 37 Foot Productions, which is just south of, in, in Boston area. His insight into working with artist bands and session musicians, he'll take us through in a completely different area of what the music industry is like. And he's worked with people like Rush and Marilyn Manson and Queensryche. My, my gosh, he's done so much. So join us next week, May 11th at uh, 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
Join us. We'll be here. Thank you all so much for joining us. You have been fantastic. Thank you to the Vader Company. Thank you, Chad Brandolini. All these different people, you have been great. I'll see you all next week. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.